You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is Make It Plain. Make It Plain. M.I.P. With Masamela Matfumo. Mark Thompson. Make It Plain. Get Woke. Ladies and gentlemen, as you have know, I have been giving, and I'm not even a professor, but I have been giving a mandatory homework assignment to my audience to watch The Great Hack. It will change the way you think about everything, your phones, the way you interact and what have you. So please check it out. And if you've seen it, you'll know my guest. If you've not, you're going to meet him and hopefully be inspired to watch the movie and maybe even get involved in some of the activism he's involved in. He is uh, Professor David Carroll, the main subject of The Great Hack, and we welcome him to Make It Plain. Good to see you, man. Oh, I'm glad to be here. All right, it's an honor Thank to have you. you. First of all, congratulations on the movie. Well, yeah, it's, it's, uh, the response has been overwhelming. So let me ask this. How did that evolve? Were you approached about being a subject of the movie, or were you the primary instigator of getting the movie done? So I was approached by the filmmakers a couple years ago. Karima Mayer and Jahan Nujame had been commissioned by Netflix to do the film, and they were looking for subjects. And they reached out to me early on, interested in, they just wanted to follow my journey. And they make films following characters through their journey. And just to have the foresight to know that it was going to be a big story Years before it was headline news, something about documentary filmmakers that I'm so impressed with and will never understand how they can see the future that way and to invest in it. And interestingly, Netflix originally commissioned them to do a movie about the Sony hack, you know, where North Korea hacked Sony. Right, 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 right. And they just said, we can't do this movie. We want to do a different movie. And so because their previous film called The Square, which was about the Arab Spring, was nominated for an Academy Netflix said, you guys can do whatever you want. So the rest is history from there. And the film was released on July 24th, which was an interesting day because it was also the day that Robert Mueller testified before Congress. And it was also the day that the Federal Trade Commission and the SEC released their fines and penalties against Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. So it all culminated into this incredible moment where the film was released, and not just in the U.S., but it was released around the world in all these different languages. And so that's one of the things that I was really surprised with was the global response all around the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I asked Spike Lee once about, you know, Netflix and what is the secret sauce that determines whether a film is successful. 
So do they tell you that? Have they told you how many downloads or how many viewers it has, or do they kind of keep that to themselves? So ironically, <laughs> Netflix is a black box when it comes to their data, yeah. and they don't even share with the filmmakers uh, the success of the film. We only have little rumors that we hear through the rumor mill of how successful it's been, but it's been among the most successful documentaries they've ever done. I see. I, I can imagine. I can imagine. So where is your lawsuit? Where is that now? Sure. March of this year, I had a trial in insolvency court, and uh, it was a remarkable trial. Unfortunately, the judgment was against me, so I lost And, and where was this? this? That was, was in the U.K. In the U.K., right. And... So what that means is I wasn't able to crack open the company in its insolvency to figure out what went on. But we did achieve several victories along the way. We got a lot of documents out of the court that would have never seen the light of day. And we also forced the administrators who were shutting down the company to hand over passwords of the servers. Those servers were seized under criminal warrant the year before in the spring of 2018 by the UK authorities, basically the data cops called the Information Commissioner's Office. That's represented in the film. The moment when they go in and they go up into the company and they take mm -hmm. the servers, that's mm -hmm. kind of represented in the film. So basically there are two tracks. There is the Information Commissioner who's done their investigation, are finishing it up. A public report should be out in November. It'll be the most complete reliable, verifiable narrative of what is on their servers. Mm. They went through terabytes of data, and my lawsuit helped them get the passwords to unlock some of the servers, which contributed toward the delay of this taking more than a year. But I did lose the case, and it's still unclear whether I'll be able to appeal and the legal costs that I owe, you know, what the final bill is gonna be. It's also a little unusual that that hasn't been resolved. So everything about this has been weird. It's just been a process of weirdness. Yeah. And the weirdness has lasted up until now. So I don't know if I'll get my data, but it's possible. It depends on if the UK Information Commissioner releases it to me when they release their public report. So why did you lose the case? What was, what was the court's argument or the other side's argument? So. We started out with a claim in data protection law. We had a claim that they used our data illegally. It was a slam dunk case, and we thought we were gonna have our day in court. But the problem is they decided to shut down really abruptly. And right. when a company- Cambridge Analytica. When, yeah, when- Went out of business. Went out of business, they declared they were going out of business. And when a company goes out of business, when it declares bankruptcy in the US or insolvency in the UK, they get protections, so they can't be sued mm. while you are in that status. So we basically, I never had my day in court I see. for the I see. real case. I see. So then it went from a data protection law case to an insolvency law case, and I got all new lawyers, all new barristers, and we built up this case that the administrators, basically the firm that was appointed to shut the company down, showed bias against me. And... It was a pretty low threshold. We only had to show the appearance of bias, that they didn't treat me like a creditor that I deserved to be treated as. And the judge actually agreed that there was bias against me, but that the remedy 
to address the bias was not equivalent to the crime. And, and in this case, the remedy would have been that the administrators would be fired by the court and the court would hand the company over to the British Secretary of State and then another company could be appointed by the state to do the job of liquidating the company. But the judge thought that basically the punishment didn't fit the crime in his idea. But more importantly, he did not want the insolvency court to deal with the data and the privacy issues. He wanted the insolvency court to only deal with typical creditor issues. And so what it showed us is that there's no such thing as a data creditor. That is, when a company goes out of business and they have your data, which some would argue is your property, and in the European law you have rights to it, they haven't figured out that it should be equivalent to money, and mm. so you should be like a creditor who gets a say in how the company goes out of business. Mm -hmm. So the other thing that was interesting is the judge, the insolvency judge in the UK, he really didn't like how the whole issue had been politicized. And so he was also against his court being politicized. It w this was never said, but you got the sense of like, why is this American in my court talking about the US election? Wow, wow. He never said that, but that was the vibe of like, this has gotten political, this is not what we do here, this is not the place for this. And he believed that the information commissioner and the other cooperation with the authorities, which included U.S. authorities. So the administrators were cooperating with the Federal Trade Commission here, the FBI, U.S. attorneys. This company is still under investigation by many governments, including ours. Did the judge know that the information commissioners were in collaboration with other U.S. authorities? Indeed. So, so that's that, part of why I don't think he wanted to disrupt it. Mm -hmm. Would your case, though, have disrupted it? I don't see how your case would have, though. We were arguing that it wouldn't. We were arguing that, obviously, the cooperation would continue and that there would be even more possibility for transparency right. to bring more information to the public light. But the judge was satisfied with the work that had been going on so far. There were two weird moments during the trial in March of this year. We wanted to talk about the work in progress that Cambridge Analytica was working on at the moment when they went out of business, which is a fair thing to talk about when a company goes out of business because these are active clients that perhaps if they just finished the work and paid their bills, you could recover some money out of the company. But that was an off-limits topic because the U.S. authorities were actively investigating that, and so we weren't allowed to talk about that. I found that to be interesting. And there was another topic that we bumped up against where, again, the other side said, we can't talk about that, and the judge says, okay, we're not going to talk about that. Mm. And that was mm. the one company that has not been liquidated out of the SCL group, a company called SCL Insights, and that was just another off-limits topic. And our understanding is that is the company where the secret government contracts and military contracts and the people with security clearance got shuffled into, and it's a top secret kind of thing. And so it really verified that we've been dealing with a defense contractor this whole time. Mm. My, my original wor worries about that have been validated the whole way through, even to the end. It makes perfect sense that they would need to keep this company secret. And when I finally got to meet Brittany Kaiser, who is another subject in the yeah. film, who worked for Cambridge Analytica up until the end, I asked her, what's the deal with SCL Insight? And she confirmed, yeah, that's, they put all the 
top secret contracts into that company to finish them up or to keep them secure. Obviously, people with security clearance are a rare breed, a valuable breed. So, so that remains a concerning mystery, unsolved. That's a defense contractor, you say? That's right. The company does work for the British military, wow. the U.S. Mi military, NATO, and we suspect it's done work for CIA, NSA, maybe FBI. I mean, it's done work for the State Department. Their business model essentially is work for politicians to get them elected and then get government contracts in the government. Wow. Yeah. What's the term for that? <laughs> it's something, it's a stronger term, I think, than conflict of interest <laughs> in that. And to use data to get those politicians elected so you can then get contracts. Okay, information commissioners, their work is supposedly ongoing. Do you have faith in that? I do have faith in that because they're a neutral party. They have no skin in the game. They are pretty independent from the UK government. The head commissioner is a, an incredible woman named Elizabeth Denham. She's actually Canadian, so the British hired her. So we've got this Canadian running a pretty independent outfit in the UK, figuring out the shenanigans that happened in the US election. And so even just sort of that independence gives me a lot of faith. And also, she has put together the most complicated forensic investigation in history, and they've had a lot of full-time people working on it. And so I just know that the world needs some answers. Yeah and they're in the best position to give answers that we can trust. Are there any other suits of your kind out there that have been put forward by individuals that you know of? Well, I didn't have much faith that there would be successful lawsuits in the United States, right? and that's one of the reasons why I pursued this in the UK. But I've been pleasantly surprised to see that there has been successful actions in the US, despite my pessimism about it. For example, there is a big class action lawsuit that's consolidated in San Francisco, so that's Americans who are suing Facebook for violations of privacy around this. And then a couple attorneys general have been suing Facebook over Cambridge Analytica and has proven very fruitful. So the attorney general of Washington, D.C. has sued Facebook over Cambridge Analytica and has forced documents out of the company and has released new revelations, one of which is that there were employees at Facebook who knew what Cambridge Analytica was and called them sketchy internally and you know, sort of sounded the alarm well before it was public knowledge. And what's interesting is Zuckerberg, when he was hauled down to Congress to testify and they asked him when he learned about Cambridge Analytica, he testified under oath that he learned about it when he read about it in The Guardian in December 2015, the first time they published a piece about the use of Facebook data. But the Washington, D.C.'s attorney general produced documents that shows there were people in the company who knew about it earlier than that. So that was an important revelation, which means either Zuckerberg is lying or this is like a catastrophic mismanagement where like something <coughs> didn't get escalated to the top. Another AG case is the attorney general of Massachusetts who extracted documents out of Facebook, and that's related to the recent headlines that people may have seen where they found tens of thousands of similar apps like Cambridge Analytica that they suspended from the platform. So another example of if it wasn't for journalists and lawsuits, 
Facebook would be covering all of this up. So the suit that was thrown out cited Cambridge Analytica, but not Facebook. The one in the UK? Yours, in the UK. Yeah, Facebook was not a defendant in that. It was just about the Cambridge Analytica companies. Yeah, Suing Facebook, was that ever an option? For me, no, because interestingly, so we all hear that there was this number, 87 million people who were sort of the victims. They were the ones who had their Facebook profiles harvested. And Facebook gave everyone a tool buried deep in Facebook where you could see if you were one of the 87 million people. And when I checked that tool, I was not. But what was interesting is Cambridge Analytica had a file on me anyway. And so what we discovered in our research is Cambridge Analytica has a file on all 200 million registered voters in the United States. And the 87 million was the total number of accounts harvested. And then from there, they matched 30 million of those to voter registrations. And then they used that to create a statistical model to then predict the personalities of all registered voters. So in in that sense, you didn't even have to be one of the 87 million to have your privacy violated. You don't even have to be on Facebook to have your privacy violated the way this all worked. And it really shows that the privacy problem is a collective harm problem, that other people's behavior can indirectly affect your privacy. It's much closer to the way that pollution works. If you get cancer and you think that you getting it from the factory in your town poisoning the water, for example, you can't prove that. All you can prove is that there's a higher incidence of cancer in your town compared to another town that doesn't have a factory. So a lot of the emphasis is about like me and my data, but the reality is it's a story about the whole country and everyone had their privacy violated in different ways, and some more than others. But it was really a story about the way that data gets blended in ways that we don't understand, that our data's out there, and it's getting attached to our voter registration file. And that's how they create these dossiers on us. And we don't even know they're out there, let alone don't have the ability to look at them We don't have the ability to say, I don't want you guys to have this. And so I think that's the real problem that the movie illuminates for us is the United States doesn't have a right to know, and Europe has it. And that's a right that we need to give ourselves in this country and any country in the world that hasn't given their citizens a fundamental right to know because you can't do anything until you have a right to know. So Europe has that. Europe has that. What's the possibility of that happening in this country? Is there, are there conversations about legislation? I'm sure you're involved in those. So California passed a law, and that comes into effect in January 2020. It's called the California Consumer Privacy Act, and it gives California residents a right to know about their data and, yeah. and the other things. There is a bill in Albany sponsored by Senator Kevin Thomas, who's a state senator and chair of the... Consumer Protection Committee, and it builds upon the California law and would give New York residents a right to know. And ultimately, the question is, if the United States passes a national privacy law, which there's a lot of talk and discussion of now after Cambridge Analytica, will it have a right to know? And if it doesn't have a right to know, then you know that the industry won the game. David Carroll with his folks. The main subject of the great hack 
when did you first realize, when did the light bulb go off in your head and say, hey, somebody's actually mining me. I'm under some type of, of surveillance. And it's interesting, too, because, you know, as Trump is invoking executive privilege on everything, we can't have privacy as individuals, but he can, mm -hmm. to benefit him, because it's actually directly benefited him. That's right. We had Aaron in, Aaron Barnett, mm -hmm. and we were talking about, because I was always talking about this with my friends, you know, I can have a conversation, we can be out having drinks or something, have a conversation, and then a topic will come up, well, let's Google it. And then when I go to Google, Google auto-completes whatever we were talking about. Like, they were always listening to it in the first place. And that is some scary mm -hmm. SHIT, man. So <laughs> did you have one of those kind of moments? Did that happen for you? What was the actual moment? Sure. Well, my moment was when I was a tech entrepreneur. And I was building an application back in 2014, trying to, you know, make a company and uh, start a business around this stuff. And when we connected Facebook to our application, and we had the, this moment of like, wow, we get everyone's data. And they were like, and my developer was like, oh, look, we can get everyone's friend's data too. <laughs> like, whoa. Other now, now, when you say data, what, what kind of data were you getting? Basically like everything that's on their profile. So their name, wh whatever they have on there, everything they've ever liked. Phone um, numbers, email addresses? It depends on what they put public. Okay, but gotcha, uh, but gotcha. uh, just the way that the, you didn't just get one person. You got their network and everything in the, in the network. And you can tell a lot by somebody's likes. People give away a lot about themselves with their likes in ways they don't understand or expect. So the original academic foundation of Cambridge Analytica was work that came out of Cambridge University. The academics there had figured out that the average American gives away a lot of their intimate traits in just 140 Facebook likes. And their really intimate traits can then be predictable with a pretty decent accuracy. So in 140 likes, so you like 140 things, someone can predict whether you give it away or not, your gender, sexuality, political affiliation, whether you smoke, whether you drink, whether you use drugs, whether your parents got divorced before you were 18. And what this is, is it's like, they're predictions that aren't necessarily accurate. So for example, I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head, but like, let's say it can predict your sexuality with 72% confidence. So it's better than a coin toss. It's not accurate all the time, but in huge data sets, it's accurate a lot. Mm. So these are just predictions. This is how algorithms work. This is how recommendations work. So when we get recommended products on Amazon or Netflix right, or Spotify, right, right, right. It's the working in the same way, that other people like you had a trend that they also like these things. So it, it finds the affinity patterns among us, and that's what makes us predictable. So that same principle is happening when we think the microphone is listening to us to target us for ads. What's really happening is we're getting grouped into very precise behavioral groups that share these traits. And it is making an educated guess on what we're about to talk about or interested in. And, you know, it might only be 85% accurate, but you're experiencing the times when it's guessing correctly. Wow. And people really underestimate location data, this idea that these apps and services know exactly where you are, 
And they also know that you're with your friends in the same place. If you're talking to somebody, each of our phones is giving our locations away and sending it to the mothership. And the mothership is saying, oh, they're in the same place. And so their interests have an amplified connection. And of course, if you go to search for something on Google, you're telling Google you're interested in that. And then Google knows that you're in the same place together. And so the algorithm could make a guess. Now, Amazon Alexa is always listening to us because it's plugged in to the outlet and it's plugged into the internet and it just sends data all day. And so that is a product that is listening to your conversations. But our phones are not listening to our conversations. If they are, then Zuckerberg committed perjury when he went before Congress because he was asked specifically, are our phones listening to us to target ads? And he said, no, Senator, we don't do that. Is he the captain of the mothership or are there multiple motherships? Mark Zuckerberg is perhaps the most powerful man in the world right now because he has absolute control over his company with the way his stock shares are set up. So the board doesn't have much control over him. The shareholders have basically no control over him. He set his company up to be like a dictatorship. And then his company, in many countries, is 98% of the population are on Facebook. For many countries, Facebook is the internet. Yeah, yeah. And there's no alternative. Mm -hmm. um, and of mm -hmm. course, he owns Instagram and WhatsApp. And so so many people spend so much of their life on his platforms that he controls. And governments have trouble holding him accountable. He is in contempt of parliament in the UK and in Canada. So he can't step foot in the UK and Canada because he risks being arrested because he was summoned to appear and refused to go. <laughs> wow. Was this why it was set up in the first place? Because, I mean, at first, Facebook... We all looked at it as something innocuous and fun and connect with people we hadn't seen in years. Was this really the ulterior motive, though, to market to us and control us as consumers? The narrative of the story of how Facebook and Google came to be is really well documented in an authoritative book by Shoshana Zuboff from Harvard Business School called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. It's a big, heavy book, but wow. it's really the definitive story. And she talks about how these companies came to be, and they were, you know, Google started out as a search engine. They didn't have advertising. Facebook was just about connecting people. It didn't have advertising. And it ultimately got to the point where they needed to start making money. And actually, Sheryl Sandberg went to Google and helped them make Google into an advertising company. And then Zuckerberg hired Sheryl Sandberg to Facebook, and she helped make Facebook an advertising company. Mm. And what they found is that they were gathering so much data on everybody that they could sell ads that were more targeted than anybody else could offer because we gave them so much of our data. And we were mm. constantly giving us them so much mm. of our data. Mm. And advertisers want to feel like they waste less money on their ads. Right. Because most times when you buy an ad, you have no idea whether it worked or anything. And both of these companies gave advertisers this sort of holy grail feeling of, I spend this much money on this ad, and I know that it worked. I see the return on investment, and I'm wasting less money by just shelling out million dollars on billboards and TV ads, hoping people 
are going to see it and do something. So their success of their business has been not just giving people what they want while collecting our data, but more importantly, giving advertisers of all sizes, small, medium, and large, what they want, which is a feeling. Right. And I don't even know if it's real. I don't know if it's based on actual real data, but at least they feel like the best place to spend my money is on these platforms. If I'm going to advertise, I might as well do it on here. Sometimes these ads work really well. And in fact, an interesting article by Brian X. Chen of the New York Times, he once did an experiment where he looked at his spending the previous year, and then he quit Instagram, and he like went another year, and then he compared his spending, and he spent like $1,800 less the following year, and then he looked at where the spending was, and he bought a lot fewer things from ads on Instagram. So these ads work in the sense that they get us to buy things. Yeah, they yeah, get us yeah, to spend our do. money. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> we are a consumer. We live in a consumer. That's right. I think the professor has given us another assignment to add to our list of homework, folks, the age of surveillance capitalism. Yeah, yeah by, we, by Shoshana Zuboff. Yeah, we're going to read that too. Sheryl Sandberg, I didn't know she went to both of those companies. So you got Zuckerberg and then Sheryl. So Sheryl's pretty much the bride of Frankenstein then. She wholeheartedly <laughs> believes that the more targeted ad, the better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She doesn't see a fundamental problem with that. Yeah, yeah. It's terrible. I mean, because I don't think anybody went in on the Facebook to be targeted in that way. And in spite of what you've done, it really hasn't subsided, has it? I mean, it's, it's ongoing. There's nothing that, that has curbed Facebook's targeting, the ads, the information being shared. With other, and we're getting ready for 2020. In fact, just recently, Facebook has announced that politicians will not be fact-checked by Facebook. They will be exempt from the terms of service, basically. So basically, if people spread misinformation, disinformation, sometimes it gets a fact-check attached to it. And obviously, if it is hate speech... They will remove it from the platform because it violates a platform. But just recently, Facebook has decided politicians are exempt. Facebook refuses to make any decisions about truthfulness or hate speech when it comes to politicians. Basically, a politician would have to endanger somebody's life in order for Facebook to do anything. Wow. That's scary. Do you feel that we can expect a Cambridge Analytica-type operation in effect in 2020, if there isn't one already in effect now? Yes and and no. So the company is no longer in the sense that it doesn't have the same personnel and the same positioning in the market. So the exact thing can't happen again. And I also doubt that there will be a British military contractor working in the 2020 election because there was one working in the 2016 election. So I think we have solved that problem. The other thing that's different is Facebook voluntarily created what's called the ads library, and anybody can go to facebook.com slash ads slash library, I think, and you can look up all the political ads running 
for the campaign, and you can see you know, all the ads and who they're targeted to and so on. So there's a layer of transparency that exists okay. that did not exist in 2016, okay. where in 2016, no one could see the ads, and also they were precisely targeted, so they were going to really small groups of people, which is a really dangerous thing for democracy. So Facebook admitted that was dangerous and made that change. But some things are the same. So this guy, Matt Oskowski, was the director of product for Cambridge Analytica, and he was, ran the Cambridge Analytica team in San Antonio. And if you remember in the movie, The Great Hack, when you get the tour of the old offices and the woman, Teresa Hong, talks to the BBC reporter, Jamie Bartlett, and Facebook was here, and YouTube was here, and Twitter was there, and Cambridge Analytica was here, and that was the brains of the operation. That was run by this guy, Matt Uskowski. So Brad Parscale ran the digital operation in 2016, and he is now the campaign manager for 2020. Brad Parscale has a company called Cloud Commerce. A subsidiary of Cloud Commerce is a company called Data Propria. Data Propria was created by this guy, Matt Uskowski, from Cambridge Analytica. So complicated way of saying, the same guy who ran data for Trump in San Antonio in 2016 is running data for Trump in 2020. Same guy. So some things are the same, some things are different. There's a lot more awareness, but there's no new law passed to protect election security. There's no new law passed to require transparency in ads, like the Honest Ads Act, which has been floated but not passed. There's no new laws that give us the right to know and the right to voter privacy, even though Senator Feinstein has proposed a bill called the Voter Privacy Act. But we do have the California Consumer Privacy Act comes into effect January 2020. And so Californians are going to get new rights and privileges. And I'll be interested to see if they exercise those rights. So if any Californians are in your audience, they need to, in 2020, exercise the new rights that you're given by your state. And that has the potential to seriously limit the industry's ability to collect data on us and sell it and abuse it. So I look forward to the effect, the California effect, we could call it, how California campaigns will be more transparent than others, and then how national campaigns will have to comply with the California rules, and so it might help us all. In the same way that California air pollution standards affected the whole automotive in industry. LA had a smog problem. They were allowed to pass really strict auto emissions rules. It made no sense to build a car that you couldn't drive in California. So the whole industry adopted California's high standard. I'm hoping that this happens in the same way with privacy. You still use Facebook? I quit Facebook and Instagram after reading one really bad New York Times article, but I had hoped to keep it because I even found it helpful to just, you know, watch them change the settings and things. Right, just, just but, to monitor, right. right but right. compared to Twitter, which I still on and very active on, I just couldn't get my word out on Facebook. Like, all I've used Facebook for was to, like, get the word out about Cambridge Analytica, and it would go nowhere. I'd get no likes, no a action. Whereas on Twitter, I could say something and I could get a thousand retweets. You could get no likes on Facebook, so do you think they were suppressing you in the algorithm? I have no way to know. Because even on Twitter, what amazes me, David, is you and I can post something and another person can post the same thing and it goes viral. It's bizarre to me. 
I believe that, you know, even in some of these algorithms, they know or there's some direction as to who to promote or what gets seen versus what doesn't get seen. It's hard to know. It's frustrating. I mean, this is the problem of, like, the platforms get all the privacy and we get none, yeah, and yeah, we have right. no right to know. Another right. part of it is Facebook's business model that there's so much content that they, there's, like, too much to show. And so when you're scrolling through your newsfeed, you're seeing the tip of the iceberg that's yeah. out there. Yeah. And they want people to pay to be promoted to go into right. the feed. I think there's this combination of there's too much content to show, so we only see a little. They suppress stuff so that people will pay to get it boosted. And that's the business model. Whereas Twitter doesn't, you can buy like the ads, but the other amplification is exactly just the users defining it. There's, yeah. there's not so much an algorithm determining what you see. It's like the people are deciding what you see by who you follow and then you know, what gets retweeted. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, because I mean, you know, I would sometimes stream my show live on Facebook. And it got to the point I would get the exact same amount of viewers every day. Hmm. So let's say it might have been a couple thousand, and it would stop. Then you get the little notice, boost. So it was clearly being cut. You know, I don't know how many I would have gotten, maybe three or 4,000, who knows? Yeah. But they wanted me to pay exactly. for the rest of them. So that obviously is the model that we're dealing with. It's a pay-to-play scheme. Pay-to-play scheme. What's next for you? I've been traveling around talking about the film because the film has, you know, reached so many people around the world. Um, I've been traveling around talking about the film. Y'all ain't asked me to do it. I'm just doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I still... mind. Unsolicited yeah, promotion, yes. you know. Thank you. Uh, so I've still got a lot of trips coming up. Just got back from London and Dublin, so I've got a lot more trips to go. Um, you in the classroom right now? Or? And then I'm also teaching, okay. and I'm teaching a class on the census... Because the census is the next battleground, I'm afraid. It's the first digital census that the United States has ever done. Never been tested. Nobody knows how it's going to work. Wow. Of course, the census happens every 10 years and then affects that decade. And then, of course, we know that the census has already been politicized because the administration wanted to put a citizenship question on it, and the Supreme Court struck that down on a technicality. But it's also this how the census is going to be dealt with in this age of privacy anxiety. What's going to happen when vulnerable people are asked to give the government their information? What about the privacy anxiety is going to interfere in getting the count? Because the Constitution says that all persons shall be counted. Persons, not citizens, not property owners. It's all people and kids. Everyone deserves to be counted because it affects... Everything. representation, Everything. it affects schools, such an important moment every 10 years. And so I'm working on that because it's interesting in New York City how the census will be carried out and will all the communities in New York be counted? And will there be targeted disinformation? So if I was a bad guy and I wanted to disrupt the count, I would spread false information about it to create more fear and anxiety and uncertainty about it. And I'd say like, Oh, if you fill out the census, ICE is going to come after you, which is actually illegal that there's a law, it's called Title 13, and it prevents the census data from being misused. So, mm -hmm. for example, for law enforcement, law enforcement can't get the census data. So that worst-case scenario that people worry about, I fill this out and ICE is going to come knocking the next day, that's specifically illegal. People don't know that. 
if Facebook just turned over every piece of information they had on us, would we need a census? Really good question. <laughs> I, I have seen internal documents that were um, leaked to me that Facebook brags to its advertisers that Facebook users map pretty closely to the census in most states. Well, good luck with everything, man. Thank you for having and, me on. And, and keep us posted on, on everything you're doing. Thank you. You know, when you're speaking here in the city or elsewhere. I can go to Dublin. <laughs> I mean, I'm out, here, I'm out here promoting anyway. I mean, I'll be your sidekick. Just let me know, man. Thank you. But we're very proud of you folks. The Great Hack, I've been saying you must watch it. And I'm making it a mandatory homework assignment for my listeners. Not just to be mean, but you need it. You need we it. We need to really know. And the thing, you know what Facebook really does for me? The, the thing, the only thing that's really that valuable, it reminds me of everybody's birthday. Yes. That's a good thing about it. It's a good and, thing. And I actually enjoy when the birthdays come up, I take the time to go on each of my friends' timelines every day and wish them a happy birthday. And some people say, Mark took time to wish me a happy birthday. You know, other than that, though, you know, I don't use it as much as I used to. I don't know if they can tell anything from my likes because you know what else I do? I only like what friends post. Mm-hmm. I don't like a lot of other stuff. So, I'll, you know, if you post something that's interesting or fun or witty or something about your family, picture with you and the kids, I'll like that. I don't know how much information they can get from that because I like there's such a broad group of people whose stuff I like that they post. Mm-hmm. And most of what I like on my personal page, just about everything, even though I do a, politi- do a lot of political talk, is apolitical. Okay. It's just like, you know, nice family stuff. That's mostly what I see. And so, I, I mean, obviously they get something from me because they want me to pay for everything else. But, folks, this stuff is kind of is scary. And I'll do this just because I'd, I'd be fair to you like I have to everybody else. See, like my thing now is the way we are controlled as consumers. We have to have this chicken sandwich. You know, now we didn't eat chicken sandwich before that, but now we got, everybody's got to have a chicken sandwich. They have to go and fight people pulling out guns for the chicken sandwich. You have to look at that and say, what happened to make you have to have that? And then it gets deeper. The audience is probably sick of me saying this. <laughs> people say, man, I went and they out of chicken sandwiches. Well, first of all, how does the chicken place run out of chicken sandwiches? That's on purpose to make you think it's more in demand. So you leave. I didn't get a chicken sandwich. Said, well, guess what? You know, you still could have got some chicken and taken home and put it in between two pieces of bread. <laughs> but there's something, that's the point, y'all. You have to look at the way you are controlled and manipulated that you feel you must have that bread from that chicken joint as opposed to the bread you have at home. So I just use that. Mm-hmm. You know, we're using the Ukraine now as a simple version of his crimes. Some people say if you get anything else, it's too complicated. Sure. So the chicken sandwich is my version of the Ukraine <laughs> when it comes to us dealing with consumerism and, and obviously surveillance capitalism. That's right. Yeah. No, as soon as you start to see it, then you can start to find the patterns and start to resist and just recapture yeah. your autonomy. You yeah, know, this yeah. is about our free will. As soon as you see it, you can get back to yourself, your own control, our ability to self-determine. Yeah, yeah. You glad to see Trump being impeached? <laughs> so, I mean, for me, foreign interference has been the story since yeah. day, day one. Yeah. Cambridge Analytica is a foreign interference story, so... Just which foreign interference is going to be the thing that finally takes him down. Yeah. (laughs) But but also, is it so much of a coinkydink that you got two characters with bad, almost same-colored hair running two of the most major governments in the world, and within the same 24 hours, 
One of them is called into a form of impeachment inquiry, while the other one, the Supreme Court in Britain rules, you were wrong to suspend Parliament. You lied to the Queen. You lied to the low lady. That's right. So, I mean, in the same 24 hours. And Cambridge Analytica was involved in both of them. In both of them. They are both clients of the same company. There's a great article in Fast Company, which is a great narrative of all the military stuff, yeah. and it links Trump to Boris very clearly. So we're not just making this stuff up. There's documented evidence that it is kind of no coincidence that the U.K. and the U.S. are in yeah. chaos. Yeah, yeah. And one thing that ties it together is this weird company called SCL Cambridge Analytica. And SCL is still operating. There's one company left called SCL Inside, the one I was talking about, that has, probably has the secret contracts. Yep. So last thing. This point here about your case in Britain, because there's still something about the discourse in Britain, and I've been watching it, where people seem to be questioning more and more every day what really went down with the Brexit vote. I don't understand, though, why they haven't gone on ahead and pulled the trigger and said, listen, we got to do this over or we got to throw this out and do something else. But I don't know. I still kind of feel optimistic that it's going there or it might get there, or am I just being naive? In some ways... The U.K. has it worse than we do because Trump, the worst that can happen for us is that he gets reelected for another four years, but then it's over, whereas Brexit is forever. And so it's a permanent, yeah, da yeah. permanent damage. And the other thing, too, is you know, we think that a presidential election is divisive or even that impeachment is divisive, but nothing is more divisive than a referendum. Mm. Like, in some ways, it really shows you that Referenda is not the best way to do democracy. No. You can see the benefit of having representatives and like layers in between the people and what actually yeah. happens. Because when yeah. the people are just given a choice, yes or no, it's just going to divide the country in half. Yeah. And especially when they're able to be marketed to and even misled. Yeah. So that's why people always said, imagine if we had had referenda on civil rights, on segregation. And we saw what happens when, you know, when it was tried with marriage equality. You just, when it comes to those types of issues and Brexit, while it appeared to be just an economic thing, it really wasn't. It was still an, an issue of, of race and class and xenophobia. And also, like, sort of nostalgia for the British Empire. Oh, my God. <laughs> Please. <laughs> like, where, where is that? Um, uh, <laughs> good to see you, man. Thank you, Rich. And, and, and since you're here and not too far, let's stay in close touch. Sounds good. And I met you, sir. When I grew up, I want to be like you. <laughs> You're doing it, though, man. I mean, this, the work you're doing is, is important. Thank you, David Carroll, folks, uh, please, please, please watch The Great Hack. You all will enjoy it. You'll be enlightened. And be smart and be aware. You know, use that third eye that you have. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Also, Subscribe to Make It Plain and Get Woke daily. Check out MakeItPlain.com to subscribe. If all minds are clear, it has been Made Plain.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.